We live in an age of political polarization and preference bubbles, of economic change, rising threats, and a rapidly changing world. Canada needs to stay relevant. We need more smart conversations. We need to dive into critical issues and big ideas with passion and unrestrained optimism. I'm Aaron O'Toole. Welcome to the Blue Skies Podcast. Welcome to Blue Skies. Today, we're going to talk about an issue that's been dominating the headlines. If you look across North America, a lot of big and medium-sized cities are seeing a change. We're seeing tent cities. We're seeing occupations. We're seeing small businesses being basically driven out of business as uh, encampments turn up, whether in Houston, the book, San Francisco, some of the large gatherings we've seen have changed debates about homelessness, affordable housing, and addiction. And so today we're going to talk to one of the mayors at the front lines of trying to tackle these problems with passion, with compassion, and with a personal perspective that is very rare amongst political leadership today. We're fortunate to be joined by one of my counterparts, Mayor Dan Carter, the mayor of Oshawa, a two-term mayor who was elected last time with 65% of the vote. But he must have done something wrong because his first time it was 69%. These, these are heights that no politician in Ontario, at least, can even dream of. He served a term as regional councillor before that. He was a journalist, a motivational speaker, a TV personality. And Dan Carter was my first media interview when I stepped forward to run for the nomination in Durham. So thank you for joining Blue Skies, Dan Carter. Aaron, it's great to be able to see you once again. And boy, oh boy, if if I was a smart man, after that intro, I wouldn't say a thing, right? I just leave <laughs> it at that and walk away. It is so good to see you. Before we get into um, your questions, that I, I just want to take the opportunity uh, to thank you for your service. You've done an incredible job on behalf of Canadians. I'm really, really proud of you, and I'm proud of um, what you've been able to accomplish. We are going to miss you, and I'm grateful for your leadership in our country. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And I wish you only great things for you and your family. Well, thank you, Dan. Uh, friendships like yours will remain something I cherish from my time in politics. And I do remember that first interview. Remember, my name came up after Bev Oda stepped down and you called me up. You were a one-man videographer. You did it all. <laughs> and you came to my house in Curtis and you said, mate, maybe we shouldn't take a shot of you in front of your house. People might yeah. start showing up. Yeah. So we went to the Curtis pool that's right. And we did the interview and some might say, uh, I, you know, I went on to some success. Uh, and then it's been a real pleasure working with you as a partner. And I really I don't like the term levels of government. It's yeah. people need to see their politicians tackling issues and sometimes collaborating. And I've always loved that about you. And today I would like more Canadians to get to know how your leadership and your views on certain issues like these challenging urban issues today were formed. Because I think your personal story as someone who's had great success in the private sector and journalism in public life, but there was a time in your life where you battled addiction after terrible losses in your family, you were homeless. Um, many people would be surprised to know that a successful 69% of the vote mayor was previously homeless. Tell us a bit about your mental wellness and addiction journey and how that has impacted your your policy decisions today as mayor. Um, well, it's 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 a it's an amazing kind of reflection as I look back, and I, I it it is one that 
um, I wasn't sure that the public would embrace, to be absolutely honest. I mean, what I've tried to do all throughout my life has been very open because when I was in television, I wanted people not to presume who I was. I wanted them to know who I was. And the reality being is I'm just like everybody else, but the reality being is I have a lot of brokenness. And that brokenness um, came from, you know, uh, just a lifetime of different challenges. I always say that my life has been tested and blessed. Um, in one way, I always thought that maybe... Am I being punished or am I being prepared for something? And that's something that I've had to come to terms with. And it started when I was a kid. I mean, my uh, my birth mother uh, passed away when I was um, as still an infant. I was put into foster homes along with my uh, my my younger brother or my brother that was two and a half at the time. I was about six months old. Um, moved around to a lot of foster homes, and I was just fortunate enough that I ended up on those doorsteps of Charles and Isabel Carter. And they were a family of, um, they had three children uh, of their own, but they fostered 22 foster babies from 1948 to 1962. And, and Isabel was a, um, um, a nurse in the Second World War and Charlie was a dispatch rider in the Second World War. So they didn't have a lot of, a lot of means, but they cared for their family and my, and my, um, my mom really believed in trying to help uh, children be able to find their way. And I was fortunate enough on, on February 14th, 1962, to be adopted by the Carter family. They didn't know what was going to be in store, and I didn't know what I was going to be in store. I was, I was originally Daniel John Robinson, and I'm Daniel John Carter now. And uh, I have uh, six other siblings on my biological side, and of course, three uh, from the Carter family. You know, uh, I was blessed uh, to be adopted by the Carter family, brought into their family. I was tested because I lost my birth mother. Um, went into school just like uh, my brothers and sisters did. Had a severe learning disability when I was younger. And it played a significant role in regards to not only my self-esteem and self-worth, but also my learning experience. And, you know, in 1960, when you went to school, if you couldn't do the work, you weren't entitled to be part of the classroom. And I think there was probably some behavioral issues, I have to say, that probably also came into uh, to play. And, you know, so a lot of my learning was outside of the classroom. My desk was put outside the classroom, and that's where I spent most of my time. Um, but, you know, I always say that my my education really, um, you know, was was not a highlight in my life. I say by the time I was in grade four, I was driving to school and, and smoking in the teacher's lounge, you know, because I was there for such a long time. But, you know, I did struggle in school. But when I was in my early years, my mom and dad could see that I was really kind of isolating. I was starting to pull back. And as you as you know, as I talk a lot and I like to talk and I, I'm an outgoing person more so. And I was starting to isolate. And my parents thought that it would be a good idea if I connected back with the community. And one of the ways of doing that is to become a paper boy. And so I became a paper boy delivering the telegram uh, to these 14 houses that uh, surrounded our area. Um, but an event happened when I was seven years old and I never spoke about it until I was 31. And this was another test in my life. And that was is that as a seven-year-old boy, I was, I was raped by an individual and never spoke about it. The shame and the embarrassment and my parents warning me not to go to certain places. And of course, I disobeyed them. And, and that really, um, you know, made my decision not to say anything to my parents. So, you know, I struggled again throughout that period of time until 1974, when I was 13 years old. My brother, Michael, that was a police officer, age 28, a father of three, um, joined the police force when he was 17 years old, uh, was killed. 
in July of 1974. And that played a significant impact on my life because of the reason that I mean, we were just becoming like brothers. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm 13. He doesn't really want anything to do with me, but he's the elder statesman of the family. And uh, that played a big role in my life. And I was introduced at my brother's wake uh, to alcohol. And alcohol, what I didn't know was I had an addictive personality. And alcohol gave me all the things that I wanted. I could be smart and charismatic and good looking and charming and an athlete and all the things that I dreamed about. And the most amazing thing for me is, is that my dependence on alcohol started when I was 13 and escalated from 13 right through to 31. And what happens with many of us that deal with either, um, you know, um, addiction and mental health is it just engulfs your life. And it, you know, it goes from uh, being something that, that, that I thought was benefiting me to absolutely making sure that by the end of it, I was mentally, emotionally, physically, financially, and spiritually broken. Of course, um, broke my relationship with my parents, broke my relationship with my family, broke my relationship with all my friends, broke my relationship with anybody that I had and ended up seeing me, you know, begging for money on the streets and looking terrible and smelling terrible. And in June of 1991, it was, you know, I'm six foot two, almost six foot three. I weigh about 215 pounds. Um, I was just over about 115 pounds on the 17th of June, 1991, when I found my sister and my sister took my call <coughs> and I said to Maureen, I woke up in a rooming house in Toronto and I said to her, for the first time I saw myself in the mirror, it was a morning, the next morning after, of course, one of my daily benders. And I saw in the mirror what I had become. My face had shrunk in. I lost most of my hair. I looked terrible. And I, for the first time, even though people said, you, you've got a severe alcohol and drug problem, it was the first time that I actually saw what I had become. And I phoned Maureen up and I said, I'm in a lot of trouble. And Maureen said, come to our house and we'll talk about it. And my sister lived at that time at Bayview on York Mills. And she was a very successful businesswoman and knocked on her door. Her maid answered the door and kind of was shocked. And I walked in and my sister was in the, in the, in the uh, kitchen and she dropped the newspaper that she was looking at. She looked up at me and she came over and she whacked me in the side of the head. And she said, you have two choices today, Danny. You either sobered up or you die." That's the two choices you have. And I remember standing there, Aaron, and the tears just rolling down my face, not only for fear, anxiety, but just not knowing what I was going to do. I mean, you know, being being sober and not, not using was a terrifying thought to me. But I, I made the decision, and because my sister had the resources, I was lucky enough to get into treatment. And that was that was an amazing start. But what happened in that treatment was I was in treatment for a year. I was I was mm -hmm. hospitalized for a long period of time and stayed in the treatment center for a year. But it was the first time I talked about being adopted and what that meant and what about my biological family and what, what happened there. It was the first time that I talked about something that I'm very ashamed of even today, which is my learning disability and, and um, you know, the, the, that I didn't know how to read um, or write. I, I'm a 31-year-old man. I, I don't know how to read. Um, the very first time that I spoke about being raped and what that did in regards to how I interpret relationships. And it was, it was a place that equipped me so that when I did leave, I was able to be stable enough to understand that I had done a lot of damage. I had a lot of amends. I had to make um, a lot of 
of relationships that I destroyed, I had to work at them. And as a matter of fact, Aaron, my brothers and sisters and my, my parents really didn't embrace it until I was about three years into sobriety. They wanted to see if I really mm -hmm. was that person that I had become. But I was fortunate enough that I was in the right program at the right time that gave me the length of period to be yeah. able to not only deal with my addiction, but also um, deal with how do I deal with all of the, the, the horrible things that I had Trauma. done. Yeah. And, yeah. and the things I had done, I was, yeah. you know, I, I stole, I lied, I cheated. I mean, I mean, I was a horrible, horrible individual. How do you, how do you ask for forgiveness and how do you show that you're, you're redeeming yourself if the other side has to see uh, that you are actually this person that has uh, turned a new pathway forward. And that's taken me a long time to be able to do. And everything was going great. Um, got back on, you know, back to Canada, started building a relationship with my mom and my sister, my brother. Uh, so you had, went you went to treatment in the United States. I did. I yeah. had the opportunity to go to Los Angeles, California for my treatment. And I was fortunate enough that that I that there was an opportunity there for me to get that treatment there. And Anaheim, the program that I entered into Anaheim was a, a spectacular program. And I can't, I can't thank them enough for helping save my life. And when I came back, I had to get a job and I, I had no skills, no abilities, couldn't read all those kind of things. And I ended up working as a doorman for a company called champions. It was an off track betting place. Yeah. yeah. Great place for an addict. Right. <laughs> um, and I ended up working, working there and a guy, a buddy of mine said to me, he said, you know, Danny, you should, you should go in a TV. You should be a um, TV talk show host. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Dude, a TV talk show host. And, uh, it just happened that I had met another gentleman, Joe Tilly, that was working for CTV at the time. And he invited me to come to CTV and, and just hang around at nighttime. And I went there every night. I'd go to CTV and see what they did and got to meet Ken Shaw and Dave Duvall and everybody. And I started getting really interested. And my buddy said, you should really become a, a talk show host. And I thought, you know, yeah, why not? You know, you know, maybe this is something I can do. I can talk a lot. So why not? Right. So I talked to a whole bunch of people, raised $28,000 and went down to Rogers Television. And they had a community program at that time. And I went in and said, listen, I got this idea for a show called The Dan Carter Show. And I'm going to interview people of influence, people that are well known. And we're going to do it in a live location. And I'm going to do this. And, you know, they asked the normal question, have you ever been on TV before? No, no. Um, do you have any skills, abilities or talents? No, no, haven't done those either. Um, do you, you know, do you, have you got any formal training? I, no, I don't have any formal training either. And they said, yeah, I don't, I don't think this is going to really, this is something we're interested in. And I said, well, okay. I said, but I, I got this $28,000 for the sponsorship. And they said, well, wait a second here. You might be on to something. <laughs> well, let, let me, let me break this down because I, I, you know, You've had great success, and that's when I first got to know who Dan Carter was, was your media personality. But let's go back, because you shared a very powerful story. You were also a motivational speaker, so you've, you've, you've yeah. shared these stories. But you had an accumulation of trauma yeah. from early age. And, yeah. you know, I deal a lot with, with mental health and, and particularly first responders and veterans. Sometimes that trauma accumulates, and it was the death of your brother where the, the glass overflowed. Yeah. the introduction to to alcohol and that from about your early teens to 31 had you on a path of alcohol and drug addiction as you said some theft and, and being a bad person near homeless and homeless um and so you have a perspective now not just as a as a politician but as someone 
that was at the depths of despair. When you called your sister up, um, that's when you, I think, realized that that was your rock bottom, I guess. And but your sister had the was it her? She had the means to help you get into that program in the United she States. She did. She did, and she was a successful businesswoman. And and it was like this moment that I embraced, and she saw the opportunity, and she made all the connections for me. And I was I was fortunate enough that my sister did have the means to be able to do it. My parents couldn't have done it. Yeah. Um, and so Maureen did, and she 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 put everything on the line for me, and I was fortunate enough to have that opportunity. And you and I have spoken about this before. Why I'm dwelling on this is the cost of longer term treatment programs sometimes are prohibitive for levels of government, be they provincial. We were funding these sorts of programs at Homewood for veterans yep. who, who developed addiction problems as a result of their mental health injuries. But that investment, I remember you and I spoke about it once or twice in terms of dollars. It cost a lot to get you well. But it costs a lot for you as a mayor now to deal with regular addiction and pickups and and police intervention, paramedic intervention. Break it down because I, I hate making it into dollars, but I'm a firm believer and I think you are. Invest in the more expensive treatment option where you can along with harm reduction but get someone off a cycle where they could come in contact with law enforcement, the healthcare system a dozen times in one year. Right. Yeah. And so let me, let me put it. And I agree with your statement because I'm living proof that long-term programs, because it's not just that we're alcoholics or drug addicts. We have all this brokenness, 30 years, trauma that has come into our lives. And people think that after 28 days, you don't drink or you don't have drugs anymore because you've done it for 28 days. You should be okay now. Mm -hmm. The reality being is we got 30 years of brokenness. And you think about people that have served in the military. They see things that we, none of us can even imagine. And that that's a long period of recovery that's necessary. I can give you some statistics. So here's a, last month in the city of Oshawa, we had 53 overdose calls from our fire department. So, uh, when we have an overdose, we have we have one truck, four personnel, one paramedic unit, two personnel, one uh, security officer, and one bylaw officer that that attend attend the office. The event happens. All of those resources used, we take them up to the hospital. The wait times, by the way, for many of our EMS and, and police is anywhere between eight and thirteen hours. They open up a file. Many times our generalists, our hospitals do not have the resources or the people or the expertise to deal with them, and therefore they're released. And though that cost alone is $4,000 per call, okay? So we had 53 last month, and we spent $4,000. So what, what's that, $220,000 that we've spent? When you look at our shelter costs, shelter costs are $64 a day, $1,920 a month. We know that long-term investments in uh, a couple things. One, long-term programs and stable housing with supported elements around it. I said this to the prime minister. I said it to the premier. It's going to be labor intense. It's going to be expensive, but we're going to have a higher rate of success if we understand that we're not just dealing with addiction. We're dealing with brokenness and addiction and the impacts that it has on our mental health. Yes, it's going to be expensive, but it, it pays huge dividends. Or, and I've been trying to make the economic argument, do you really believe that this is the right way to spend dollars? 
millions of dollars on a revolving door that is having no results at all. So I absolutely agree on long-term programs, probable, uh, uh, proper discharge programs where people are supported in a supportive environment. The prime example, the YWCA has a house program for women that are um, uh, fleeing domestic violence. You know how long their programs are? They're 18 to 24 months. Were their house for 18 to 24 months? Do you know why? Is because it's not about just taking them away from domestic violence. It's about self-esteem, mm-hmm. self-worth, about strength. They have to build that individual back up again, equip them so that they are able to never see themselves in that situation or their children again. And it takes 18 to 24 months. We know it works with them. So why wouldn't we do it with addiction? And mental health. We have the solutions at our fingertips. It comes down to is what I've been trying to do is here's the economic argument. And this is what we're doing today. What do you think is a better pathway forward? Mm-hmm. I, I love, you know, in fact, some of your advice to me made it into our program in the 21 election where we were going to fund, you know, 24 or so um addiction and recovery centers across the country, federally uh, sponsoring um, shelter and support services, uh, including additional several hundred million dollars for indigenous specific ones, because that investment up front eliminates that revolving door. As you said, of the 53 overdoses that were responded to, $4,000 a call, think of all those frontline responders, think of the healthcare system. Your city, uh, I've spoken to some of the paramedics they will often see the same person struggling with the addiction two months later, one month later. Same um, month. Same, same month. month. Yeah. Four calls for one individual in some circumstances. In some circumstances, they, they don't get the treatment at the hospital, not because the hospital doesn't care. It's that, they, that they're so stretched in regards to the impact of healthcare system now. They walk down the street, down to the 401 in Simcoe, and they go over the edge of the bridge. Hmm. Like, we, you know, we, we have to understand that what we're doing right now, we're, we're having some success, but there are, there are pathways forward that we can have great success with. But this means that we have to understand a couple of things. Understand we have 245,000 people that are unsheltered right now across this country. Understand we're losing 22 people a day to opiate-related illnesses and dying on our streets, Okay. Mm-hmm. Just put the, put a pin in that and think about it. Suicide, twelve people a day that are that that we're losing, impacting uh, our families and friends. Mental health that's costing us hundreds of billions of dollars a year, and lost product productivity, hospital care, care, all of those kind of things. We have a we have ideas about how to address this. One is one of the things we did here in Oshawa was we created a micro home project that is got nine units. One unit has supported services 24 hours a day. You don't put 75 sick people together in an environment mm-hmm. because it, it doesn't work. You've got to do small communities with wraparound services to be able to support those individuals through this period of time to be able to get them to a place of strength so that they can move forward. And we've got good ideas and good solutions. It is massively expensive. But here's the thing, Aaron. We met the challenge through COVID. Mm-hmm. We found the money. We know that we're in billions of dollars of debt that our country has had to absorb. But we did it because of the reason that we needed to do it at that moment. This is a national health crisis this country is facing. 
And we have seen it come from West all the way across the East. We saw it in the United States. Do you know in the United States, for the very first time last year, opiate-related deaths outnumbered gun violent uh, deaths in the United States. They had 109,000 opiate-related deaths last year, and they had 92,000, I think, gun-related deaths. First time. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it, it is a crisis. And I, I said several times when I was opposition leader that there were more deaths in British Columbia attributable to the opioid crisis than to COVID. And we, yeah. as you said, basically locked down our society and spent unlimited pots of money to tackle something that was killing fewer people than these toxic drugs. So let's let's have some tuck talk because I, okay. I I love I've got you going because you know the subject and you've got street cred literally. Um, <laughs> the harm reduction safe supply debate. So right now there seems to be two sides in this sort of polarized debate. There is the folks that say, well, harm reduction and safe supply is where we need to go. That will solve this. And then there's the other side. You know. Um, some folks saying, let's physically pick people up and force them into treatment. That's what's being talked about in Alberta now. Yeah. Um, let's, let's talk about both because I do think there's compassion at the hearts of both of these things. But what I always said when I, I supported harm reduction, of course I would support harm reduction. There was almost a progressive naivete that wealthy people that don't often confront some of these challenges, think that let's just change the laws and give, you know, free and safe drugs to people and that will eliminate all of the significant harms. It's naive because it doesn't deal with the underlying issue. So where do you fall in this debate over, over all these things? Because I really think in this polarized environment, we're having the 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 two sides kind of throw throw stones at each other and the addicted, the the people struggling are underneath these arrows suffering. So what do you recommend as a big city mayor that has overcome your own challenges? So it's a combination of a couple things. I mean, first of all, realize what we're dealing with and then make sure that individuals are getting to the right hospitals to get the right care. It's like incarceration. You know, we incarcerate people and then we release them without a discharge plan. And then we're shocked when we arrest them six weeks later and they're back into incarceration. We have to understand that, that you know, crime and punishment is one part of it, but rehabilitation is another part of it. There's a big discussion in regards to um, safe consumption uh, uh, centers. There's a big debate in regards to safe supply. Um, and I think that what has to happen is, I think what we need to do is have a spirited conversation, but we have to go into it saying, what we're doing today, is it working? And if it's not working, let's have an honest conversation about mm -hmm. it. So from what I understand with the safe consumption sites that I've witnessed and seen, and I'm just speaking about my own experience and some of the experience of frontline, especially police officers, safe consumption site means somebody goes out, they buy the drugs from the drug dealer that's still profiting, by the way, and mixing whatever, fentanyl, opiates, crystal meth, trank, whatever he wants into this mixture. They go buy the drugs. How they buy the drugs is either through um, the money that they have or they have to uh, turn to other means to be able to support it. Um, they go to a safe consumption site. Some of them go inside to use uh, drugs and, and, and there. A lot of them use them outside of the building but around the building. 
And so, you know, we've looked at it and said, okay, so now we're, now we're saving lives because we got people inside that are, if they OD, we got people there. If they're outside, we got people that can, we can help them with the overdose issue. Um, and, and I have a real problem with that because I don't think we're addressing what the issue is. Um, it's like uh, the harm reduction kits. It's great that we have harm reduction kits, but shouldn't the question be that our harm reduction kits, if we're giving out you know, 200,000 of them and they go to 600,000, shouldn't we have a conversation about that 400,000 and say something, something mm-hmm. this isn't good. We're using one measurement. And the one measurement is, oh, we've got safe, uh, we've, got, we've got harm reduction kits, bloodborne diseases are down, so we, it must be working instead of looking at it as a whole picture. On the safe supply uh, conversation is um, is then safe supply comes in, so that means that the individual shouldn't have to buy from uh, a drug dealer on the streets, shouldn't have to resort to uh, criminal behavior to support their habit, and that they come into a safe environment, they use safe supply, and that there's an opportunity for wraparound services. I think that we need to have a conversation about what's working and what's not working. And I know that there's test sites in regards to safe supply, and I know there's um, safe consumption sites. What I can tell you is our city at this particular time is not embarking on on safe on safe consumption sites in our city. I'm not a. I don't believe that that's all that needs to be done. I think what we need to do is how do we how do we do a couple of things? You'll hear the police say this all the time. We're not going to arrest our way out of this. I also think it was a, a major mistake to think in British Columbia that two and a half grams, we're not going to arrest people for two and a half grams and that that's that'll be part of the solution. When the reality being is we weren't arresting them with two and a half grams before. Mm-hmm. So it, it we're not and then we're harming the people that are the sickest instead of the people that are selling the poison and killing people on the streets. So, you know, the reality being is I think we've all got to put our knives down and sit down and have a conversation about what's working, what's not working. What are we trying to do? Mm-hmm. And and I think it's I think we just look at it almost like a mash unit. You know, all we're trying to do is patch somebody up so that they survive another day. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to look at it differently. And I think we have to look at it as what are we trying to accomplish in regards to not only saving one's life, but how are we going to help that individual be able to rebuild their life? How are we going to get them into better health? How are we going to help them be able to uh, deal with the issues that they have in their lives? And how are we going to support them through that period of time so that they will become ambassadors and educators and lobbyists in regards to what's truly going on in our community. Yeah. So I'm a, that's just my stance. Put, on the, that put the, put the knives down. I like that. I think we need I, more, more of that in politics, but let me add the third option because you talked about the two that I think are pushed heavily on kind of the progressive left. If you want to call it that the, the mandatory treatment option, this kind of, um, you know, pick people off the streets, take them out of that toxic environment, mandate treatment. It reminds me of our our friend, the late Jim Flaherty. You remember when he was a provincial I person? I and know where he, you're going with this. And, and and this was in the era of the squeegee kids and, and other things. Yep. And he at one point said, when it came to addiction, we need to get people off the street and and get them into treatment programs. And I think the Toronto Star or someone called it jail the homeless. That's right. And, and um Jim was kind of parodied for it, but now we're hearing this conversation. It's it's not jail the homeless. It's not what they're saying is how do we mandate treatment as maybe part of a, a criminal release or a, or a justice program? Where are your thoughts on that that whole thing? Because obviously I have some charter concerns. Yeah. Yeah. But um, if this environment, as you said, putting 
75 people struggling with addiction in the same building without the proper wraparound supports, you're just going to, yeah. uh, you know, encourage, you know, repetition of behavior. So you have these small communities like your small yeah. homes project. Yeah. What about this pulling them right out of the environment and mandating treatment? Is that an option, do you think? So I think treatment has to be a centerpiece of regards to if we truly want to save lives and we want to get people into the right uh, the right place. So I think that that's number one. Number two is, um, you know, in the United States, they have drug courts and the drug courts actually mandate in regards to individuals showing up at court to actually go into programs. And I think that's one of the missing components. We have drug courts, but I don't believe that they have the same authority or that they're being used in that way. Um, and by the way, we're not getting when people are arrested on the streets, they're released on the streets. There is no there is no kind of, um, you know, it used to be you got arrested. You went back to the police station. They did your fingerprints and photographs. By the way, I know this firsthand. Um, uh, and then you would have a court appearance um, and then the judge would put conditions on and you would do that. Now the laws change dramatically and it's almost you have to be released on site. I think that there's an opportunity for our court systems as long as we understand it can't be just the court systems. We have to have this, the, the treatment beds to be able to send them to. So, yes, it's a great idea to have a drug court so that individuals, you know, Mr. Carter, this is the fourth time you've been in front of me. And, you know, you and I have had a conversation and you said you were going to change your behavior. Your behavior hasn't. So we're going to be able to we're sending you on treatment. Right. For the next 120 days to this facility, because we did tell you in your previous appearance um, that if this continued, that this was what was going to be mandated. I, I don't see a problem with that. I think that if we truly want to save people's lives, I think that's something that we should look at. And I know what the conversation out West is all about. And I know charter rights come in. You can't do that. You can't do this. So I, I have a, a real fast story for you. I, I, I met a lady through an organization called DeHafta, and it's a great organization in Toronto. Anyways, and I met this lady and she said, Mr. Carter, um, I, I was one of her, I, I spoke uh, at her event. And she said, Mr. Carter, I have a 16-year-old daughter that's starving herself to death. And she said, and as you know, she can make her own medical decisions. And she said, I'm her parent. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And you you sit there and you kind of think to yourself, oh, my God, this is a parent that all they want to do is save their daughter's life. And she's able to make decisions on her own if that means that she's going to be, you know, starving herself to God. And my heart broke. And I thought to myself, there's something wrong with the system. There's something wrong that there's a missing component. Yeah, there's a, a place where you can go to the courts. We can get this kind of specialized thing, but it shouldn't be that complex. We should we should understand if we're going to try and save somebody's life, we're going to use every tool in our toolkit. When we show up at an emergency site or in your background with the military, you've got an injured individual on the battlefield. What do you do? You use every resource possible to save that individual's life, right? And you do it at that moment because that's the right thing to be able to do and i think that we need to get to that place where we better understand that it's unacceptable that 22 people a day die that we have millions of people that are addicted to drugs and that what we're doing right at this particular time is not working so yeah we're going to have to get really uncomfortable about things that maybe will 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 make others uncomfortable but if it's going to save lives why not have that conversation right now we can't even have the conversation it's yeah. either you got to be right or wrong or, or or it's there's you know you're infringing on people rights at what point is it fair to individuals that have the charter to be able to protect them but at the same time we know that those rights also 
are killing individuals. Mm -hmm. And then we say, well, it's their right if that's the case. And I just, it breaks my heart to think that. Yeah, no, we're, we're, we're not, we're talking across each other and we're not looking at the person. I, I, I remember when I was leader laying the Globe and Mail one weekend on the, on the kitchen table and showing my kids the pictures. They ran pictures of people that had died from opioid deaths in Canada in the previous six months. And there were two, including two 13- and 14-year-olds from Vancouver Island. And with the toxic supply, you know, this, this, this pandemic of tears that really is the opioid crisis uh, is something that requires a whole of society response. And I think that's why these conversations, why I wanted to have you on, because you know your stuff. Let's... Um, let, so we've covered all those aspects. I want to get into for the last part of this is just the big challenges we're now seeing in urban centers. Uh, I referenced the book San Francisco. Uh, the New York Times had a, an amazing podcast on a family business in Phoenix that an encampment just happened to basically rise up on the doorstep of this small business that the family, all their life savings were tied up in and they would open up every morning with someone bleeding or in crisis on their doorstep that, you know, the cities are just not even patrolling some areas. Um, we're seeing a, an erosion of, of trust in institutions now in politics and everything else, but we're also seeing that city streets where it used to be unusual to see maybe a panhandler. Now we're seeing an encampment of tents and cities within cities. And there's a fear not to address it because you don't want to seem aggressive. And the progressive folk voices are saying this is their right. And are we seeing a slow erosion of this sort of civil order because of our inability to have these tough conversations and come up with a plan, some of which that plan may include a, a bit of tough love or, or, or difficult decisions. Yeah, and I think that um, you're absolutely right. I think the, the especially the business community has suffered tremendously, especially in the downtown course, all across this country. As a matter of fact, all across North America, and you know, with governments have been trying to address the issue of the opiate crisis and the homeless issue and the mental health issue, and the business community is has kind of sat on the sidelines and said, yeah, we understand this is a national health crisis, but I'm losing my my life savings. Um, and we've had to take extraordinary steps in the city of Oshawa where we don't have outreach workers. So what we did is we had to hire four, level four security guards, retrain our bylaw people and our security people to work on a specialized unit from seven at night till seven in the morning um, to be able to, um, it's a hands-off approach. And, and the biggest thing is to navigate coordinate and get these people that are on the streets or in tents into proper care. And we're, we, we've made that massive investment, even though we're not, our core responsibility is not health, social service, policing, or housing. That's a regional responsibility. Um, but we had to use the local tax dollars to be able to do that. We brought in CIPs about the lighting and gates on stores. We brought in a welcoming streets where they would be a liaison between business and, and the, and the agencies and the homeless population. We've had to do a lot of really creative things. Things. But the business community, we have to understand that if we're going to be, if this is going to be part of the solution, we need the business community to be part of the solution. And if they feel that they're not being supported through it, we're going to lose their support. And we are losing their support because what they, what they perceive and what they're seeing is there's a massive investment on one side. And on the other side, the business community and small business is saying, 
we're receiving nothing in return except for the problem getting worse and you need to do more. And I get the calls daily mm -hmm. and, you know, it's frustrating for me. So you look at what are the mechanisms, CIPs, grants that are available, extra security, clean the streets, pick up the uh, human waste. Do you know, we put um, six um, um, portable washrooms in our downtown. They lit them all on fire. So the company that was supplying them won't ever supply us again. And they just became too dangerous. Um, so you, you see this kind of this scale that's kind of really on on the verge of something that is is not good. And I think that we better address um, the issue of the impact that it's having on business. That's why I think that we have to have an economic argument about what's truly happening, not to dismiss the health issue of it, but the economics of what is it costing us in regards to the yeah. services on the front end, but what is it also costing us in regards to our local economies and how are we going to be able to fix that? And I think we better realize that, you know, that this is a serious, serious concern. Business is suffering tremendously. And Aaron, you ask any mayor across the country uh, about their downtowns and the impact it's had on their businesses, every single one of them will say to you, absolutely, that have had a huge impact. And the business community is saying, we need people to work. We need to be able to, we're willing to be part of the solution, but just respect mm -hmm. the public sidewalks, respect our businesses, um, respect all uh, our people that are coming to work or to the office. Yeah. And um, it's, 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 it's really, you've seen it in Vancouver where, and, yeah. you know, San Francisco, uh, Sicko makes the, um, makes the case in regards to what's happening in other big cities where yeah. the large portions of their downtown are unhabitable, right? So your, your key word is respect. You said we need yeah. to respect the businesses, the people working downtown. It's the erosion of respect and our inability to, to, to really police it. You know, you, you talked about you were living in a boarding house at one point, you know, before yeah. you hit your bottom. We have laws about rooming houses and boarding houses and how many people in a building. But slowly we're building up these encampments where there's really yeah. no laws, no rules. Yeah. There's cities within cities with lawlessness, with abuse, with, uh, you know, of course, addiction, which is fueling it all. Um, I think there has to be a willingness to tackle it, even if there will be some mistakes made in the short term, because it is perpetuating a a kind of state of disorder that, um, you know, is is going to just perpetuate itself. So I'm a firm believer in making that investment, spending the large sums of money to put someone into a long term treatment, not the 30 days and then plunk them right back in their environment. As you said, deal with the underlying trauma, help them on a mental wellness journey. And it may seem expensive up front, but all of the costs of those overdoses of policing those cities and the erosion of your tax base as businesses wrap up because they don't want to operate next to the flaming port right. john right? So right. do you see the big city mayors maybe pushing Ottawa and even Queen's Park in some cases to say, we need long-term investments. We're at the front lines of this, but you guys have the taxing ability. Um, what is your plan for 
the big urban course. The sad part about it, and this is, I'm not trying to be political on this, but I'll just tell you what my personal experience is. The federal government has been, and, and the governing party at this particular time, in my opinion, has been absent from this conversation and continues to, to be absent. And I don't understand why this issue is not on the front page of every newspaper across this country every single day, because that's how bad it is. Mm-hmm. And the reality being is local governments do not have the resources or the expertise to be able to do it. Regional governments do not have the resources or expertise to be able to do it. The provincial government has a role and a responsibility, and so does the federal government, and so does regional government, and so does local government. This has to have all four of them at the table to be able to have this as a solution. I said about the COVID uh, response. We used every resource on all levels of government to address something that we thought at the time was something of a state of emergency that thousands of people would die, that we had to do drastic things. By the way, there was a lot of things that, that, as you know, from what we saw through the protests, a lot of people felt that the charter rights were were infringed upon through that period of time. So, yeah. What about now? So I, I just, I, I, I can make the economic argument. Is it better to spend $70 a day um, or $120 a day putting somebody into a safe environment um, than them sitting in a tent? Because I, my personal thing here in the city is I do not tolerate tenting in our city. If yeah. you're in a tent, I have a responsibility to find you a safe bed. And that's why we've got a team out, outside because tent encampments, based upon what I've witnessed, are not safe environments. And by the way, last week in Peterborough, there was a shooting in a tent environment. Yeah. They're just, it's not a good place for people. Human waste is not a good thing. Propane tanks that are open, fires that are in open areas, you know, uh, the, the this crowding of spaces, it's not healthy. We've got to be yeah. able to say to everybody, you got to come to the table. Sorry there, to go there, on. No, there can be no liberty without order. And we're seeing a complete erosion of order because of this kind of, I said, progressiveness that makes it seem like we can't set rules that might limit this behavior. We can do that provided we show the compassion with treatment. So let me let me talk briefly and we'll end here because I, yeah. I praise the Globe and Mail's coverage of the opioid crisis, but I've been very upset with some of the, you know, uh, superficial reporting on Oshawa in the Globe. I think it's been Marcus G. It has you know, been I, Marcus. I, I guess you can drive 45 minutes and write a little story. Um, one of your measures to try and keep parks and pathways free from from loitering in tent cities is you've uh, installed a few acoustic devices that yep. disperse crowds. I actually think that's minimally intrusive because you have a duty to the people that want to enjoy public spaces um, uh, free from violence, free from intimidation. These are tough decisions, but I, I know the businesses, I know the homeowners want you to make it. Again, it's this kind of naive, out of touch folks that say we can't do anything. Let's just let uh, Rome or Oshawa in this case kind of burn because we don't want to make tough decisions. Talk about the decision on that and some of this coverage that is now making, you know, some mayors, you've got a rig mandate and you're very popular and well-respected. You're willing to take a few tough decisions, but is this, you know, sort of environment going to make it hard? Because I, I think the globe has no. not covered Oshawa properly. No, I don't either. And, I, and here's what the problem is with the media today and journalism today. It's about clickbait. 
That's what it's about, clickbait. So if it's clickbait, it's going to work. And I and I agree. I was very disappointed in regards to Marcus's last article that was on the front page of the Golden Mail two days in a row. Uh, one is is that the exaggerated um, way that he said it. He said we've had four murders in the downtown core. We've had had four murders in the downtown. We had four murders. We have had four murders in the city. Um, we had one murder in the downtown core, and you know I take I take um, a real offense to it, and I really take offense in regards to the way that it was it was described. Um, but that's for another day. I expect more out of the Golden Mail, to be absolutely honest. I thought that that was the standard bear of journalism across this country. It is. And, we praised them earlier, but I think it's yeah, fair. We have but, to we have to call the real shots but it, too. But that was, you know, that wasn't the first incident with Marcus writing an article mm -hmm. in regards to it and saying, you know, certain things that were just not factual or correct. Anyways, the device that was put under the John Street Bridge was a combination of a couple of different things. It's an isolated area, uh, but there's a pedestrian area in the area and a mm -hmm. seniors facility there. We were having overdoses and criminal activity that was happening under there. It's near our creek bed. So yeah, originally, originally what we thought is, why don't we fence the area off? And Cloca said, you can't fence it off because it falls within the the uh, floodplain. That's the conservation so, authority. Right. Yeah. So yeah. what we did is then, so we said, okay, so what other suggestions? We went to Dermage and we said, what other suggestions? They said, well, paint the area, get rid of all the graffiti, get it cleaned up, make sure you clean it every single day and change the lighting. So we did that. We put in LED lighting, we cleaned it up, removed graffiti on a regular basis, took all the garbage out of there all the time. Broken windows, you know, broken windows you know, policy. Right. Clean it up. Just, just yeah. everything. Patrolled it, got bylaw security down there on a regular basis and it still didn't work and we were still struggling with it. And there was, there was a device that was recommended through security experts that said, these devices have this tone that is like a lot of businesses, by the way, what they do is they play classical music outside their businesses and people don't like it. Like young people don't like it. So they, they don't hang around that area. So businesses have been doing this for a long time. But this device has a high pitched um, sound on it and you can you can you can turn it up, you can turn it down, but you use a, a audiologist to be able to make their recommendation about the right way. So we we after all these steps that we take we were still having the problem and people were dying under the bridge because of their overdose ems doesn't know where they are by the time our security and bylaw people found them they were they were already in in serious condition so we tried this device and we put the device in and we made sure that we didn't set it at the highest level that we put it at the medium level and what happened was people would not congregate in that area and it and it started uh, to make a, a big a big difference in regards to uh, the criminality that was happening there. It wasn't about anything else except for trying to make sure that people didn't die under so that bridge. It, wor it worked. It, it did work. It did yeah. work. But we yeah. got criticized tremendously for it uh, by by journalists. But I don't believe that they talked to any of the seniors yeah. in the building that saw the direct result of them yeah. seeing that that wasn't happening any longer in their backyard. And by the way, we it wasn't the first step. It was the fifth step we took. We took all the recommendations all the way through. We even looked at how how can we block this area so people can't get no, in. No, no. We don't I, want people to die in there. I, so. I, I think this is an example of you showing some leadership. An annoying sound, and that's what it is, um, to save lives or to promote safety or to promote some sense of order and, and structure as opposed to chaos is some of the tough decisions we're going to have because I think... What I see sometimes with some of the coverage, 
but also some of the political debate on this is the politicians who who are never living or working in these areas make decisions without knowing how the neighbors or the small businesses nearby are suffering as a result of the decline of order, the decline of civility, the decline of respect. So how do you make decisions that are minimally intrusive, which is generally a legal standard for, for kind of remedy or action? Um, and I think this is an example of it. I think the, as you said earlier, the criminal justice system allowing people to opt into treatment as opposed to a harsher sentence, it maybe addresses some of the, the charter issues we have with the sort of forced treatment option. But if we don't have these conversations, as, as you said earlier, Dan, if we don't put our put our you know gavels and our and our batons down and have a serious talk about challenges, we're going to see the tent cities grow, the encampments grow, and the businesses hollow out these cities, particularly now that you can work remotely, AI is replacing some jobs. Are we going to hollow out the cities so that nobody goes down there and they become basically um, sets from The Walking Dead or something like that? So we, we have, have to, to have these conversations. Yeah, and we have to we have to come to us. We have to have. Um, the understanding that we're going to make mistakes and we're going to, and we, but we have to have the opportunity to make those mistakes. Mm -hmm. We have to try, we've got to be innovative in regards to it. I was criticized heavily when our council made a decision that we didn't want people giving out food in our parks. We wanted them to, to take that energy and work with our agencies because it's the one time that we can connect with an individual and you can go, man, that's a really bad cut on your arm. You should see our doctor that's here because it looks like it's infected as you're giving them a sandwich. It's the time that you connect. You find out who they are. What are the services? Where Where's the place of origin? What do they need right now? Not just a sandwich, but medical care, health care. Do they need transportation? Do they need a place to stay? The agencies are set up and food is one of the ways that our agencies are able to connect with those. Yeah. Food is a place, believe it or not, we use the dinner table as a place of gathering or when we want to bring family around. It's a place where, where we, we have conversations, we have a connection piece. It's the same thing with our agencies. And we made that tough decision not to see people go hungry because we made sure that we expanded our investment in a, the agencies that were providing the food. So we've done that. So we need to be able to say to the, to the public that these are tough decisions we make, but here's the reason why we made it. Do you know in Barrie, they just passed a bylaw about panhandling and giving out food, right? In their community. I talked to the mayor. He said, it was 11-0 vote to be able to support this. I said, wow, that was a, a really, and he said, there's a protest uh, at City Hall here today, but he was willing to stand in a difficult situation because he believed that that was the right thing to do. Doesn't mean I agree with it. All I'm saying is we've, we've, got, to, we've got to be able to have the opportunity to be innovative in regards to what we're doing, yeah. because what we're doing right now, right, is we're not having the type of results that we, we need, and we need big results. That's my former colleague, Alex Nuttall, there in yeah. Barry. Yeah, yeah no. that's right. So, so listen, um, that's why I do this podcast. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping up as member of parliament uh, this summer. Uh, the blue skies may stay on, but as, uh, you know, civilian Aaron O'Toole and, and not MP. But without these real conversations, we have people tweeting a solution here, TikToking their compassion there, 
we need structure, we need order, we need compassion, but we also need real conversations. And I think that's what we've been blue skying here today. So your story, Dan, I think is an inspiring one, but your leadership is even more impressive because I do think trying to bring sides together, trying to tackle these tough decisions, not just rag the puck, you know, cut some ribbons, use your 65% uh, approval and, and, and just ignore these underlying problems. I think there's a lot of communities of your size and even larger um, that could learn a lot from how you're trying to tackle this in Oshawa. And let me say this, did the Carters ever, you know, did they, did they live long enough to see you become regional councillor or mayor? No, no. My mom and dad both passed away. And my, unfortunately, um, my sister Maureen in uh, May 17th, 2000 committed suicide and she never got to see, um, the result of her work. Um, my brother David is still, yeah, it's myself and David that are still alive. And David lives in Oshawa and he takes it on the chin for all decisions that I make from his neighbors. <laughs> but you know what? I, 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 um, a lot of people have invested in me and a lot of people have given me the opportunity and a lot of people have believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. And I think the great thing about it is, um, you know, I still walk down this hallway at City Hall and I see my nameplate and I, I just, I still say to myself, can you believe it? What I am the most fortunate individual uh, to be given this opportunity. I love my city. I know it's difficult times, uh, but you know, uh, those I, I'm not willing to run out the door. I, I'm running in the door and I want to try everything I possibly can. And I be honest, I'm too stubborn to, to give up. And I, I just believe that the answer is there. And I think that, um, I think we're getting there. I'm hoping it's one of those moments that the tipping point, you know, remember when AIDS had that tipping moment yes. and, and suddenly it became a worldwide uh, focus and they came up with solutions and raised billions of dollars and they did some incredible things. We, we need that moment right now where everybody sees that um, this is a national crisis. This is an international crisis and we need everybody to be at the table. This isn't going to be solved by two guys. And it's not going to be solved by a local mayor. It's going to take 34 million Canadians to come together to be part of the solution. Educate, inform, lobby, be prepared to have a conversation. But let's have spirited conversations in a respectful way. And let us truly be able to say to ourselves, not no, but what if? What if not that, maybe this? And let us at least work on it. Do you know, hostage negotiation is all about keeping people communicating. As long as you can keep people talking, there's always hope that it's going to resolve the issue. And as deep and as dark as it is, that's what they try and do. They try and make sure the conversation continues. Well, let's try that and see if we can have a conversation nationally about addressing one of the most complex health issues we've ever faced as a nation. Hope is the most important thing. As yep. Andy Dufresne and Shawshank said, perhaps yeah. the most important thing. So listen, thank you, Mayor Dan Carter. From the street to the executive suite, a leader who inspires and tackles the tough decisions. Thank you for blue skying these tough decisions today. We didn't shy away from tough discussions of homelessness, addiction, compassion, leadership. Uh, thank you for your leadership for our community. It's been a privilege to work alongside you on many of these Uh, challenges. Our friendship will remain, but thank you for uh, showing an ability to bring people together and have these important conversations. 
you know, it's always a pleasure. And I wish you um, the very best in your next chapter. And I wish you only wonderful things for your family in the future. So thank you, Aaron. And thank you for your service to our great country. You're an amazing individual. And I'm proud to call you my friend. All right. I'll send you a check for that last <laughs> But thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for blue skying this with us today. If you are struggling with addiction or if you need help, reach out. There are supports in your community. There's supports in your family and friends. These discussions are difficult, but let's make sure we have them. Canada's a great country. We can make it even better. We've got to have these strong conversations and we can never lose hope. And we've had a great conversation with Mayor Dan Cotter today. Thanks for tuning in to Blue Skies.